and welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast all about real estate. The dirt, the deals, the people, the places, it's all here. I'm Marissa Luck, real estate reporter at Houston Chronicle. If you've ever walked by Discover Green Park lately in downtown Houston, you've probably seen that 28-story skyscraper under construction that's rising over the tree canopy in the park. With all of its concrete and steel, looking up at the building, it looks like any other large construction project you might see downtown. But there's actually something pretty unique about this $225 million project called 1550 on the Green. That's because the concrete, steel, glass, and all the other components of the building have been analyzed for their carbon emissions. The developer of the project, a U.S.-based subsidiary of Swedish-based development firm Skanska, has committed to analyzing what's known as embodied carbon, or all the carbon emissions embodied or tied up in the building materials. Now, I've written about this before, but because it was Earth Day kind of recently, it got me thinking again about how real estate companies can do their part to try to limit global warming. You see, usually when we think about curbing carbon, we think about emissions tied to the fossil fuel industry, to aviation, to transportation. But real estate plays a really important role, too. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change estimated that in 2019, buildings accounted for 31% of all carbon emissions globally meaning all the carbon it takes to power, heat, and cool the buildings, plus the carbon locked up in the components of the building itself, contributed to almost a third of all carbon emissions annually in 2019. So in other words, if the world wants to limit global warming or to try to mitigate some of the effects of climate change, then we also need to be thinking about real estate too. Up until recently, it was not super common for real estate developers to consider all the carbon emissions that were in the construction materials that went into their buildings. Most of the focus has been on what's called operational carbon. And that is the carbon emissions tied to just like running the building, think AC, think lighting, think electricity, for example. The industry thought about operational carbon for a very long time, right? I mean, we've always focused on energy reduction and efficiencies in the buildings, but we've never really focused on, you know, further down the supply chain and the, the carbon produced by our concrete manufacturers, our steel manufacturers, you know, aluminum, other, other different materials um, that, that came into the building. That's Matt Dombrowski, Skanska's executive vice president based in Houston, who's helping to oversee construction of 1550 on the green, which Skanska says will be its most sustainable project in Texas. Operational carbon is something that I think the industry had watched for a long time. It, it Operational carbon deals with the energy efficiency of the building, uh, energy reduction, um, all the things we used to associate with how a building was more sustainable. You know, today the conversation is, is changing. I mean, we're really focused on, you know, the materials that go into the building, uh, the supply chain and how it affects the buildings that we build. Because in a new office building or even an older office building, up to 50% of its carbon footprint could really be attributed to embodied carbon. So I think it's where the industry needs to focus and continue to figure out how a way to reduce it. In other words, if you only focus on the carbon of operating your building, then you're overlooking a huge chunk of the overall carbon emissions of the structure. In some cases, that could mean you're overlooking like half of the building's carbon footprint. So to figure out the embodied carbon of 1550 on the green... Skanska is using this online embodied carbon calculator called the EC3 tool. So imagine this like big dashboard where anyone can go online and look up various building materials. 
there are more than like 100,000 on this database and it's always growing. So contractors, engineers, architects can basically go and check the carbon emission profiles of all these different materials in the project and then use it as another way to evaluate whether they want to work with a particular supplier, like just like you would evaluate the price or the cost of a material. So Skanska is using this tool and the information provided by suppliers about their carbon footprint to help it make decisions about which suppliers it should work with and choosing the, you know, the lowest carbon options. So the information about the supplier's carbon footprint is vetted by third parties, which we'll get into more later in the podcast when we talk to the creator of the EC3 tool. So it's not just like suppliers are making this up or something and there's no checks. Uh, originally, when Skanska started designing 1550 on the green for downtown Houston, Dembrowski said there was not like a ton of suppliers publicly discussing their carbon footprint in Texas. But Skanska's project, he says, is actually, you know, starting to change that. A great story in Houston was that that in, in 2019, we kind of started this process and started on, along this journey. Um, there weren't a lot of suppliers that had this information available. So kind of pushed the industry and then required them to provide it in order to be part of the project. So it's a good story for here that we were able to, you know, identify a gap and help try to close that gap. The EC3 tool that Skanska is using is free. It's open. So any architect or engineer, developer, really anyone can go, you know, use it as a way to evaluate their carbon emissions. So far, we we found that it's not, um, you know, you can you can achieve up to a 30% reduction in embodied carbon um, without a huge cost to do that. So it's just by using, you know, materials that are available that we, we, we found that's, um, uh, you know, fairly easy to get to. To get a better understanding of how the Embodied Carbon tool was developed and how it's growing, I sat down with my Looped co-host, Rebecca Schutz, and Stacy Smedley, who previously worked at Skanska, and now she's the executive director of a Seattle-based nonprofit called Building Transparency, which helped to develop the Embodied Carbon Calculator, or EC3 tool. So we'll dive into that conversation now. Thanks for coming on, Stacey. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Cool. So I know that we talked last year, but I I thought it'd be good to bring you on to Looped because we have a lot of folks that are interested in looking at, you know, sustainability in real estate. And it seems like this is, you know, has been one of your passions. Could you maybe just tell us how Building Transparency started and how the EC3 uh, embodied carbon tool kind of came about? Sure, absolutely. Prior to building transparency, I was a sustainability director at Skanska, um, one of the major uh, construction companies here in, in the states, but also um, with, with you know our our, our uh, mothership in in Sweden in Europe. Uh, Skanska put out their carbon targets in terms of getting to zero carbon, including their supply chain, and tasked some of us with really figuring out how how to account for those emissions. So. Supply chain emissions are the emissions associated with how we manufacture building materials, how we transport to a site, how do we install these materials. And um, I really went on a deep a deep dive into those emissions. Um, and as someone trying to source those emissions, became really frustrated because there wasn't a really good place to go where I could easily find the carbon intensity values for the products that I wanted to put into my project in Seattle or Houston. Uh, I, I found the source of these, these emissions factors uh, and these verified documents that lived all over the internet in PDFs uh, called environmental product declarations. 
and they had these magic tables in them that were kind of like nutrition labels for building materials where they gave me environmental impacts versus, you know, calories or, or carbs like you'd see on a, a box of cereal. So I could get to a, a carbon intensity per serving size of concrete, for instance. And I started just downloading all of these PDFs into a database uh, on my scan computer and finding these magic numbers and putting them into spreadsheets. Um, and I, I started thinking about, you know, how easy, much easier it would be if I just had a place I could go where I could search, you know, an online database of these things without having to do all of this work. And if I had to do all this work, then every other person that was looking for this data was going to have to repeat the same amount of work that I was putting into this. So Skanska had uh, innovation grant funding that they would allow employees to actually go uh, propose um, projects for. And um, I proposed a project to get to a proof of concept for a digitized database of environmental product declarations with a free tool that would allow anyone to search and sort for this information just like I was trying to. Um, Skanska Seed funded that proof of concept. Um, we were proposing on a project for Microsoft here in Seattle. We mentioned this to them and they came on as, as a separate seed funder to bolster what we could do with this digitized database and tool. It then turned into a much larger project where we um, moved it to the Carbon Leadership Forum at the University of Washington uh, to get developed as a free tool that would be launched to basically the entire industry. Um, so that's really the origin story. I guess to try to describe to listeners there's like a website where you can go and it looks like a big database, right? And it has all these building supplies in the database. And I believe you can search based on, it's been a while since I've looked at it, but you, you can search like if you want to find, uh, you know, cement in your area or something like that, you can go and search a database and see what suppliers are on there, they'll estimate what their emissions are. Yeah, it's not even an estimate, so it's actual emissions. So you could go, just like you said, if you're talking about cement, if we just follow that, um, it might be more applicable just for concrete because that's what you actually buy as a contractor. Yeah, cement's the biggest Im impact in terms of emissions for a concrete mix, but concrete suppliers are really who we engage with as contractors. So if you go into concrete ready mix, you search for um, Texas or the Houston area um, and click search, it would give you the list of the suppliers in your area that have mixed specific declarations and it would show you exactly the range of all of their mixed emissions um, where you can compare supplier to supplier to see who's lower or higher generally for all of their mixes. You can click specific mixes and compare each mix on their carbon intensity. If you know there's certain mixes that meet your requirements. So it's really, you know, first, which manufacturers are being transparent and disclosing check that box. Then next, which manufacturers are providing my lowest carbon option um, check that box, then which product by this supplier is my lowest carbon product. So you can really do all three of those things in EC3, depending on how far down into the weeds you're going um, on your, your comparisons. For people like me who sort of understand, I get that there's the entire supply chain of concrete and that there's like various emissions involved in that supply chain. But could you like walk me through? Because I think some of them will probably be unexpected to me or listeners. Yeah. So I think concrete's um, a good one because cement, cement's, you know, the biggest emissions problem for concrete. Cement by itself is almost 10% of global carbon emissions. So as just a manufactured material, it has a huge impact and it, it has a huge spotlight on it. Um, a concrete mix is made up of more than just cement. It's got cement, it's got aggregate, uh, it's got water, it's got admixtures, um, but typically in a concrete mix, the, the cement emissions are, are upwards of 90% of the total concrete mix emissions. So all those other things like the aggregates and the admixtures are 10% of the total emissions of that mix. 
whereas cement is the majority. So for concrete, um, the best thing you can do is reduce the amount of cement in your mix. You could look for alternatives to cement. Um, some cement suppliers are now doing projects where they're going to capture all the carbon off of their um, cement kilns to get to a zero carbon cement plant. You could source cement from some of those new new plants that are going to do that. Every material has these different levers you can pull. And, and it's interesting in construction because you really have to become kind of an expert as you go material by material in terms of what lever you can pull and what you should start looking for. And with cement, like what is the process of making it that like creates all these emissions? Because maybe that would help me understand. Imagine these levers, you know, you said that a kiln is involved. I can imagine how that would take a lot of fuel to power. Yeah, it's not even the fuel. It's the it's the process emissions coming out of the kiln to actually calcinate the limestone. So the actual process of making the cement releases CO2. Mm-hmm. So people tend to think that every product, it's the energy that you're using to create the product. But in some cases, it's, it's actual like the, the stuff coming out as you're processing the ingredients into something. And that's the case for cement. Oh, interesting. So you have to calcinate. calcify limestone yeah. in order to make cement? Yeah. Calcinate. Non-chemistry. They have to mine, so it's all the energy from mining the limestone, and I don't know what else is in there. Sometimes, like sand, or they're they're mining materials and they're throwing it into a kiln, heating it up a bunch. And so, what you're saying, Stacy, it's not just the the energy of heating it up; it's actually stuff that's coming off, <laughs> like a chemical reaction. It's mostly the stuff coming off. Okay, yeah. interesting. And yeah. and it's so fascinating when you walk around any city; like, there's so much concrete everywhere <laughs> if, if you know when you're just looking at these sidewalks and buildings you're not thinking about like all the emissions that are just wrapped up into that and, and you know in the process of creating a new building right <laughs> like you have so much that's why i say when, I, when i'm doing like keynotes or presentations i always i always end with when you look around this room you don't see co2 spewing out of all everything that you're looking at but i do now because that's really what happens like it's a hidden Embodied carbon, they're, they're hidden emissions that you don't see. Uh, it's really hard for people to, to wrap their heads around it. But once you do, like I'm looking at my gypsum wall in my my office room, and there's CO2 that it took to make that gypsum board. But by looking at the wall, I can't see that. I don't know that unless I've been educated and I have a way of getting to those carbon values I need. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it hasn't been until somewhat recently that the real estate industry has started to actually consider the emissions in the materials themselves, right? I would say um, the Carbon Leadership Forum was really the first kind of entity that started engaging in this work maybe 10, 15 years ago, just trying to create education and awareness. But the uptick has really been in the past five. You know, I think even in, in EC3, you know, we launched in 2019 when we started the nonprofit and the tool launched as a free tool with a thousand people on the wait list. And we're up to 35,000 users in 70 countries in three years. Wow. So it's this constant, it's not like a, a curve that's going, you know, straight up vertical, but it's this very steady 45 degree angle of, of who's engaging, at least through the metrics we can track through EC3. But in the real estate sector specifically, you know, we're seeing a lot of the large tech, the, the big the big tech companies that have all sorts of projects they're building, data centers. The iMasons just put out a, um, a joint, um, letter with Microsoft, Meta, Amazon, Google, all signing on and saying we need to decarbonize concrete. We need to put EPDs in EC3. We're starting to see more of those large companies who have huge building portfolios begin to look at this. I think there's this mid-tier of developers um, like Skanska, where there are some that are leading, um, but there's a huge opportunity there, I think, at this kind of level underneath these large 
you know, giant companies with huge portfolios globally to hit these developers a little bit more on the education front. I think that that awareness and, and adoption is just at the beginning of that of that 45 degree angle. Why do you think that it's getting more attention now? So I think there's a couple of reasons. I think it really began even for Skanska, right, where we large companies are setting zero carbon commitments and they're saying we're including everything. We're including our own energy that we um, are consuming in our buildings. We're including our fleets and all these things. And we're including all the stuff that we buy, which is the scope three stuff. Well, as you start including that and tracking it, you know, that's really where these purchased building materials live. Um, Scope three emissions for the major companies are are turning out to be 90% plus of their entire scope, all three to put together. So there's this huge spotlight put on it once you start tracking it. And it's the one that we haven't been focusing on where we don't have the consistent data. And we, we have way less time than we did when we started energy modeling and energy tracking, you know, 30 years ago with codes and everything else. So the timeline's really short to 2030, 2040, 2050, you know, 2030 is only seven years away. And some of the commitments start showing major reductions having to happen by 2030. So we have a much, much more compressed timeline to actually figure out how to account for this stuff and decarbonize it than we've had uh, when it comes to operational energy, where we're, we've made huge strides over a much longer, longer time scale. So there's a couple of ways to frame this. If you just think about CO2 emissions, right? So for operational energy, you're, you're modeling, you're saying my building is going to be this efficient and it's going to consume this much energy over the next X number of years. So you're projecting and you know you have this kind of year-on-year accounting you're going to do. With embodied carbon emissions, the majority of the emissions are in how we make these products. So really the time that they're going to be spent into the atmosphere is, is now at time of manufacturing. And you have this one moment to decide to choose a lower carbon material to reduce those emissions that are going, going to go into the atmosphere today. So they're actually a much more urgent uh, emission to reduce uh, immediately with the decisions we're making because it's not like we're projecting the CO2 that's happening in 10 years with our energy consumption. You manufacture the material, the CO2 is in the air, you can't take it back. So you have to make that low carbon choice to actually reduce those emissions in real time. And then in terms of the scope, it really depends. If you think about a building in Seattle where we have a hydroelectric grid and uh, a really good energy code uh, with a low energy use intensity bar, when you look at the embodied versus operational emissions here for a building's entire life cycle, uh, the embodied emissions can be 80 or 85% of the emissions of that building when you look at it comparatively for embodied versus operational. And somewhere else with maybe a dirtier grid and a more lenient code, it could be 50-50, mm. 30-70. But on average, if you look globally, it's around 50-50. Can you walk us through some of the levers that can be pooled for like a certain material, like if we wanted to use concrete again, like I can imagine maybe using less cement in the mix or like what, what are some of the levers you can pull for different materials to lower the amount of emissions? Yeah. So for, for concrete, if we start there again, cement's the major contributor. So it really starts in mixed design. Uh, well, first use less of it. There's quantity too. Mm-hmm. So all of this math is quantity mm-hmm. times carbon intensity. So how do you optimize how you're using these materials? How can I make a lighter structure? How can I do a hybrid structure of concrete and, and mass timber? All those things during design where you can optimize the amount of certain things that you're using. And then when you're getting into the specification for concretes, it's really how do I set up my, um, my performance requirements for this mix that allow my concrete supplier to replace the cement or to do things where they can optimize on carbon emissions. So performance specifications for concrete is really important. Don't set a maximum cement replacement in your, in your, in your specs. Let the concrete supplier um, push that cement replacement based on the performance you need. 
And then when you get to the concrete supplier side, um, cement alternatives, uh, SCMs, slag, fly ash, um, what can I do to replace the cement? Type 1L cements, a new uh, a newer type of cement that um, is about 10% less emitting in how it's made. That process of making the cement is, is a little bit less emitting. And why is that? Um, I think it's just the, the the type of limestone that's being used. There's just something okay. that doesn't doesn't create as much processed CO2 off of the kiln. Okay. It's Portland limestone cement uh, that's being used at the PLC. And then there are also cement alternatives. There's really amazing startups like Brimstone that are actually looking at... Um, alternatives to the cement altogether. Like how do we just move to a, a new uh, input to the concrete mix that does all the same things that may be carbon negative or carbon storing. And there's exciting stuff happening there. That's just kind of in the, they're, I think they're building their first facility right now. I, I know in Houston too, we've seen uh, some mass mm-hmm. timber projects proposed. There's a new mass timber project proposed in West Houston from Hicks Ventures, some other projects that have been kind of pitched around. And, and that that would be basically the timber is replacing steel, which is another huge um, carbon emitter, correct? Right. Yeah. And that gets into the whole optimization during design. Like what's the best fit for my project? What materials can I swap out or use less of? How do I use some of these materials together to, to really optimize my carbon, uh, embodied carbon emissions? Um, so yeah, I think we need all the tools in the toolbox. I think you know, we, we do support mass timber, but we're, we're never going to be able to build every every building out of mass timber. So we have to be decarbonizing these other uh, materials as well. Um, especially we think about, you know, construction outside of, of uh, regions like North America or Europe, where they're just starting to build a bunch of stuff. And they're, of course, pointing to concrete and steel because that's what we all use. Right. So how do we help them start to see there's lower carbon options of those materials, too? But but yes, absolutely. Um, it's how you really optimize throughout the whole process. Uh, starting with the materials used so, in the first I, obviously, place. Obviously, you know, this it, tool is being used by Skanska, but there, I know that there are other real estate companies that have said they want to look at embodied carbon like Heinz and I think Brookfield and Kilroy. Do you know if any of those companies are using your tool or any other real estate companies are accessing the, the EC3 tool? Yeah, I can't tell you specifically yes or no in terms of you know user access, but um, I, I do know that some of the folks that you just mentioned have put out reports using EC3. There's a lot of attention on it right now. Um, and we're working with a lot of owners, um, either as our partners, you can see who's partnered with us on our, our website uh, directly as pilot partners. Um, but I think in our little you know pie of, of who's using the tool for those 35,000 folks, it's about 30% architects, 15% contractors, 10% owners, 10% sustainability consultants, 10% manufacturers. It's kind of everyone. Last year when we spoke, there was there were significantly more suppliers in the database in who were based in Washington State and California. Uh, and there were there were suppliers in Texas, but I know it was Texas had been kind of lagging. I was curious if there were any more Texas suppliers or if you've seen any sort of uptick nationally or it or maybe it's just kind of slower or what you've kind of seen in terms of getting more suppliers in like the South to, to participate. Yeah. There's a couple of positives going on. I think, you know, projects like the, the Skanska project helps spur some of the demand for these EPDs. You just, you really, you really just need one project and one supplier to really help push a market. So I think right now we've got three or four concrete suppliers in the Houston area that are supplying EPDs. Whereas two years ago, we may have had one or zero. Um, And that's happening all the way across really the entire 
country, um, we've got a map on the homepage of EC3 where you can, you know, see by by county where we have EPDs, manufacturers of EPDs uh, for products. Oh, what's an EPD? Oh, an EPD is an environmental product declaration. Okay. So that's the actual PDF document that third, that's third-party verified that has that carbon. It's the nutrition label. Yes, it is. Okay. They opt into that just by one, usually, usually one owner or one policy telling them that they need to or asking them to. Are those audited at all or do they just self-disclose? No, no self-disclosure. So um, that's one of the things that got me excited when I found EPDs is that there's two levels of verification. First, the, the life cycle assessment, the actual analysis you have to do to get to the nutrition label, um, follows ISO standards or EN standards if you're in Europe, um, which sets up like, here's how you do a life cycle assessment for a product and you must follow these rules. And that gets verified by somebody. And then the product category rule gets established for concrete, for steel. There's a different rat rule for each material. And that product category rule says this is what you must include in your EPD. And there are third-party entities like UL, ASTM, Smart EPD, a bunch of program operators that have the authority to then take that verified LCA, meet the PCR requirements, those rules that they've that have been established, and then publish the EPD for the manufacturer. So the manufacturer can't publish their own EPD. They have to engage the verification of the LCA and a program operator to, to basically publish it for them with that verification. Sorry, LCA is what? Life cycle assessment. So that's the actual okay. analysis that you have to do to, to get all the inputs on energy and materials and transportation to a manufacturing site and verify all that to get to that nutrition label. So basically it has to be verified by a third party. And it has to follow established rules and standards. There's very definite rules for each product category in terms of how they do the math, what they include, the scopes of what is accounted for, all of those things. The LCA rules are set by ISO or there's EN in Europe that's used in that market, but it's you know globally recognized standards for life cycle okay. assessment. And then for the product category rules, they're typically published by one of those third-party program operators like UL, ASDM, and they have to be... Um, Put through review and there has to be a working group that establishes the rule before they're published. So there's a pretty regimented process in terms of, of how you set up the standards and then how you have to meet them uh, to get your EPD published. What hesitation or pushback do you see sometimes from suppliers? Um, there's cost. So, you know, this is going to cost me money to do this. I don't, I don't understand this. There's cost and risk just about something that's new. There's a lot of work going on to, to help alleviate those concerns. There's $250 million in the Inflation Reduction Act for EPD grant assistance for manufacturers for construction materials. So there's a huge effort to try to help take away that barrier of cost and I think perceived risk through education. Um, there's, I think, sometimes pushback in terms of just fair comparisons inside categories. Like how do you make sure that you are not comparing apples to oranges? So you're comparing, you know, green apple to red apple. Um, within a category. So can you compare rebar to hot rolled sections and steel? No. Um, so we've worked with the American Institute for Steel Construction. They're a partner of ours. One of the things we try to do is be really, really explicitly um, careful in terms of how we categorize and subcategorize materials to enable fair comparisons within, within those product categories. So we're trying to help with that one just to make sure that manufacturers understand they're not being unfairly compared to a product that doesn't follow the same types of rules. But yeah, I think those are the main the main costs and just fair comparison. I was curious if you'd had any, and I'm sure this is totally different by different project, but if a developer wants to evaluate embodied carbon throughout and actually take actions to, 
you know, always choose whatever's the most sustainable or least emitting option. What does that do to the cost of that, the construction project? Like, is there a range where it's like, yeah, we typically, typically see construction prices um, up like 5%, 10%, 15 or I don't know if there is any sort of estimate typically. There are, yeah. And this is, um, so there's a really great study published by the Rocky Mountain Institute, RMI, uh, that Skanska assisted on where they you know took a, a few projects and looked at the costs and looked at the carbon in- emissions and were able to kind of say, you know, for this range of reduction, it's X. And really what we found in generally is that because the first thing we're doing is just taking products that currently exist and getting the manufacturers of those products to tell us how much carbon is in them. There can be a range of 30%, 50% um, for for products that meet the same performance requirements and are already cost competitive. So low-hanging fruit is this first zero to 30% is typically what I say, where you you could have a swing of that much with no cost difference or increase. And you might actually have the lowest carbon option be the lowest cost option because they're competing on it. So so you mean to say that reducing the emissions by like up to 30%, there's ways to do it where you're not actually substantially increasing the cost or it's sort of like low hanging fruit. It's low hanging fruit. It could be less expensive. Like for concrete, if you have a supplier that's optimizing their mix, they're reducing cement content. The cement replacement might be cheaper than the cement was. So you might actually be getting a lower carbon mix for less money. And knowledge is power. So we don't, the first thing we're doing is unlocking the, the data so that you can actually see, oh, for these three carpet tiles, for instance, this one's 40% less carbon. I usually procure all three of these things you know, interchangeably and they are always compete on cost for me. And now I can just say, hey, we're picking this one because it's got the lowest carbon value and it's still cost competitive and meets my requirements. It's just another column in that decision-making um, chart, uh, it's another currency. It just needs to be built into everything, just like cost is. Carbon is a currency. That's so interesting. Were you surprised when you first realized that? Yeah, I mean, I think this was back when I was still at Skanska, and we were just testing some of this during, you know, the creation of the, the tool. Uh, I sat down with the three major suppliers uh, of concrete before I knew a lot of what I know now, just to be like, hey, you know, we've got an owner, we've got this tool we're looking at developing using EPDs, these environmental product declarations. Do you have them? Do you know what they are? You know, two of them had them, one of them didn't. I asked them why they had them and they're like, well, by us doing this, we can actually for our own selves know the carbon values of our mixes and be able to see that we can re- optimize this mix and reduce carbon. So they were using it internally, actually, before it was asked for externally for them to understand where they could make uh, lower emitting mixes. And so I said, well, what happens if we start asking you for them? And they said, no one has yet. If you do, we'll just start providing the lowest carbon option at the most competitive price we can. And I was like, okay, well, that seems good. <laughs> Let's go try that. Um, and in in Seattle, where we we had the Microsoft Campus project, and where we've got you know Skanskas and Turners and other big construction companies starting to look at this, just in the data in EC3 for those three major suppliers, wow, their average cool. emissions for all their mixes has gone down twenty percent in three years. Mm, so just because people were looking. And because all we had to do is ask them and they're, oh, well, we can, we can optimize on both cost and carbon. So we'll just do that if you tell us to. Yeah. It was just getting more awareness. Or any. Mm-hmm. Any awareness. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of lessons like that, I think. So you said Turner Construction is also looking, are there any other major big construction companies? Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we started, um, building transparency started with, with Skanska, you know, being our first partner for obvious reasons, um, because of their role in helping to, to create it. Um, we now have Turner hit Suffolk Clark. Um, I'm trying to think multiplex in Canada, um, all as pilot partners this year. 
So there is this uptick um, in, in GCs, general contractors really seeing that they need to understand this to either get ahead of the federal and state policies that are coming, get ahead of owner requirements that are coming now from a lot of those major owners um, to be able to do this work and use EC3. Um, yeah, that's that's the piece of the pie that's actually growing the most right now is the, the general contractor use of the tool. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So I think that there were like 80,000 building materials on the database last year. Uh, how many materials are on this year? Yep. We're actually at 111,000 because we went through a, an exercise to get rid of some expired ones or duplicates, but 111,000 EPDs currently in the database um, and 35,000 users. So what would be your advice for a smaller contracting company or a smaller real uh, real estate company that is trying to figure out how to reduce their emissions, but they don't, they may not necessarily be able to um, afford to choose like the most best sustainable thing every time. Um, or, you know, they may not have the power in the market to negotiate a price down. Like what, what's kind of, what would be your advice to those like smaller um, developers? I would just say, you know, add that carbon column to how you're, to what you're including in your cost estimates. Like, is, you know, again, EC3 allows you to just really quickly and easily get to that carbon intensity value per unit of material. So there's no reason that you can't, anyone can't today say for this amount of concrete, here's the carbon intensity value from these three suppliers and be able to use that as another, just it's, it's, it should be become part of the language that we speak when we're talking about making decisions and, and procuring products. So use EC3, you know, uh, see if the products that you use have environmental product declarations. If they do use their carbon values as another decision-making lever where you're at least just, even if you're, con- if you're a contractor, even if your owner's not asking, there's no reason that you can't say, oh, here's the cost of this product and here's its carbon value. There's no reason you can't start doing that just to raise awareness um, because the data is, the data is there now for you uh, in, in EC3. Um, owners, uh, what I love about embodied carbon in some ways is that the requirements and how you approach it don't need to be different, whether you're a, a large con- a large owner, a small owner, a residential owner. Um, or builder, it's requiring the transparency through EPDs for a set of materials. You set what those materials are. It's then assessing the products you're going to use based on their carbon intensity and cost. Those are really the two things that you need to do to get started. Um, And that's consistent, whether it's for a a data center or commercial development or a house. Well, my understanding is EC3, so it's all the carbon emissions in the manufacturing but then the missing link would be what are the carbon emissions in transportation, right? We started with just A1 to A3, and that's what EPDs can consistently report, right? Because it's, it's hard to know the distance until you know your project location in the, in the plant and can do the math. But now in EC3, we actually ha- include transportation and construction uh, site emissions. Oh, okay. So in the project, you can you know, put in your, uh, your quantity of material and the, the product and the project address, and we, we calculate the transportation emissions for you. So you can actually see how much they are compared to the manufacturing emissions and and add that into what you're accounting for if you want to. So what's the, I guess, the biggest concern or challenge that you hear when you're explaining this out in the public, like, or, you know, biggest question that you hear? It's a lot lot around the credibility of the data and the the verification and, you know, can we trust this? And, um, you know, are we going to get everyone to to buy into this? And there is a a valid question just around within an EPD, how specific the data is and are you getting, you know, averages versus actuals. And there's a lot of work happening at the federal level with, again, the Inflation Reduction Act funding and the EPA 
work as well as at the United Nations level that we're engaged in to help really further define those standards to even get more transparent with the data. So um, one of the things that we always say, I think uh, myself and Kate Simon at CLF, the Carbon Leadership Forum, that we, we couldn't wait till everything was perfect to get going because of that shortened time frame that we have. So we're transparently using and disclosing the data we have today and working to make it even more harmonized and comparable globally um, as we move along. And getting federal eyes on this and federal funding here in the States is a, is a game changer, actually. Yeah, so that that's actually like grants that a builder can or an owner can apply for? So in the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed, there's funding for low embodied carbon materials across the agencies. So there's, again, $250 million in EPD grant funding to help set up a, a program to help manufacturers engage in disclosure, um, to help reduce the cost barrier, and also to help, stand, help, help create those standards, those product category rules, and those specific requirements to get more consistent. Then there's um, billions of dollars across the GSA, FEMA, um, Federal Highway Administration, et cetera, to actually go spend money on low embodied carbon products, um, you know, billions of dollars per agency that they have to spend by 2027. So those large government agencies are going to start to mandate EPDs for materials, start setting thresholds that you must be under. So anyone can use the data once a manufacturer has disclosed it um, through a requirement from a policy like that. And it becomes available for everyone. So it, it, it's to have billions of dollars in a in something like that come through and get passed. It was the largest climate bill, actually, I think, ever uh, in terms of the funding that was included. It's it's a game changer, really. And these agencies would use this funding for their own buildings, or they would distribute. They it? would use it for their own buildings, so their own building portfolios. I see. The GSA is the largest procurer of these materials in the U.S. So to have them have a mandate to, okay. to spend this money. And, you know, they have what to. is the GSA, the General Services Administration. They own any any government building in the U.S. They have over two billion dollars of funding to spend on procuring low embodied carbon materials by 2027. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, you must spend so much time looking at databases and numbers and, you know, all this like super nitty gritty stuff. So so what it, what kind of like keeps you going and, and motivated to continue doing all this? Like- I mean, I think if we can minimize how many people have to do those, that, the minutia, the nitty gritty stuff and unlock all this data in a way that makes it usable, you know, for anyone really. I mean, if you think about it outside of just construction, imagine a world where any consumer could see the carbon intensity of anything they want to buy really easily and have that just be an easy thing that they expect. So I'm looking at two pairs of shoes and I, this one's, you know, lower carbon by 20% and I like them both and I could just pick the lower carbon one because I have the data. So that keeps me going. Just, um, we need to have the folks in the weeds doing the hard work and getting this to a place where it's digital and accessible and free so that everyone can just have this as something that they do in their decision-making process. And that's how we actually decarbonize everything. Um, it's that type of impact that we need. The accessibility and the ease of use has to happen. That requires some of us to get into the wheat, but not everyone. Hopefully we'll see the tool used in more Houston projects and more suppliers, you know, getting involved in Texas. We appreciate your your time and, and your work, Stacey. Thank you. Oh, of course. I appreciate the time too. 
And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like this episode of Looped In, please consider sharing it with a friend. It helps get a reporting out there so that more folks know what's going on in Houston and the real estate world. If you ever want to say hi or suggest an idea for a podcast episode, you can reach out to me on Twitter at MarissaLuck7 or my co-host Rebecca Schutz. She's at R.A. Schutz. Thanks to our print editors, Brian Rausch and Carol Motzinger. Thanks to our audience editor, Fatima Farha, and to our producer, Scott Kingsley, and to Farrell Gibbs and his band, All the Kimonos, for the theme music. Until next time. 